This week on Writers, Inc. Evan is a character who really moves forward significantly in the course of the series. This is a very different kind of book. A lot of these are very different kinds of books. They function in different ways. Um, you know, the first Orphan X, the first two are a little bit more like tough, muscular thrillers, though they always have a lot of heart. But what the books are really about is him thawing his way into his humanity again after having been trained to largely suppress it. Um, for me, the key line in the series around which all the stories coalesce is when Jack Johns, his handler, former CIA station agent, has him when he's 12. He tells Evan, the hard part won't be making turning you into a killer. The hard part is keeping you human. And so all of the books are about that. And as he kind of moves and grows, the types of challenges, the types of trauma, the types of emotional impact, the ways that he's stretched, the things that threaten him, where his vulnerabilities are, they all shift. And what's been amazing about that for me is it's given me the opportunity to write these very, very different kinds of books. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Hi, it's Christine Daigle. Patrick O'Donnell. J.P. Reinflush. Kevin Tomlinson. And I'm J.D. Barker. Welcome to Writer's Inc. So I've got a question for you guys. How many of you have audiobooks through Findaway Voices? Oh, I do. I have at least three. Anybody else? JP is nodding over there. I'm almost about to. Uh-oh. I know where this is going, JP. <laughs> so I, I, I got a, a frantic phone call right after receiving what I'm assuming was a frantic email. Um, apparently, there's a clause in the find-a-way distribution agreement that I you know, I, I don't read my contracts, and I, and I should. And I've got people that are supposed to read my contracts, but this isn't my only indie published one, so like I just didn't bother. But apparently, there's a, a clause in there, and I, and I went ahead and just copied it because I wanted to make sure I got the language right, right but it's titled Machine Learning. So I'm just going to read it. Rights holder grants Apple a limited, non-exclusive, non-transferable, non-sublicensed right and license to use digital audio product files for machine learning training and models provided that in no event shall any rights holder digital blah 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 the bottom line is if you have a contract with findaway you've automatically opted in to allow them to use your book your audio book for machine learning so for teaching uh, ais which i'm guessing is how i got into chat gpt or whatever like if you say in, in the style of jd barker it works and a lot of authors it doesn't um so i'm guessing this is how i snuck in there Oh, that's a connection I hadn't really made, but yeah, because you said you you mentioned you were in there too, right? So that's because that's I, 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 I don't I don't think so. The that this is this is a tricky one because I from what I am not an attorney, I am not a copyright attorney, but I mean I do know quite a bit about copyright, and I you know really there's no serious danger to copyright here it's I, I know where this concern is coming from but mm -hmm. i don't i think people are panicking for not necessarily a great reason it's it's not like they're stealing your content and repurposing it or plagiarizing it it's a training model 
So they, we haven't granted anyone the right to reuse the content, for example. No, no, no. What, they've, what we've done is we've granted the right for them to teach their AI to be me. Which is, yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah. But also, aren't you giving the voice of the narrator and therefore training it under the voice and speech pattern of your narrator to an AI? So the way I understand it is that what what they're really doing is using it to train the AI uh, things like phonetics and and pronunciation, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. I don't. It, it's not about duplicating anything. It's not about duplicating either the narrator or your content. It's about teaching the AI what is uh, appropriate and standard for like reading rhythms and, you know, pacing and things like that. Um, now that said, I mean, you know, like all things, AI and copyright related, everything's open for interpretation and who knows where it's going, but I don't feel a panic about it personally. I might be alone. Well, I mean, just looking at this (laughs) with, with my former chief compliance officer hat on, um, basically what I'm reading is there's nothing excluded from it. So like right. they could use this, that, what, what you just mentioned is probably what they're using it for today. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. What they're going to use it for tomorrow isn't defined in this in any way. We're basically granting them this blanket right to, to get out there and, and do it. Um, you can opt out, but the problem is, you know, like it's, it's happening after the fact. So if I opt out today, are they going to go back to the AI and say, hey, forget this JP, J.D. Barker guy? Like it's, you know, you can't use him anymore. Like I, I can't see that happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, my biggest concern in looking at like I've, I've got a lot of there's a lot of pluses for AI. I, I think it could speed up this process in a lot of different ways. I think it's useful for, for certain things. Um, my biggest fear is when an author passes away, somebody is eventually going to get to the point where they can continue writing books in that author's voice. Yeah. Um, whether that is the author's family, the author's publisher, uh, whoever is the trustee on that author's trust, because a lot of these things are going in that direction. Um, somebody other than the author is going to be writing books, and, and this is going to give them the, the tool to do that. Um, whether we can stop that, I've got no idea. I seriously doubt it um you know it's 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 coming one way or the other but yeah I, I just figured i would bring it up because it's just these kind of things are starting to sneak in i've noticed them in a traditional contract as well where there's language in there allowing the publisher certain leeway yeah. um with this type of thing and it wasn't in my previous contract with this particular publisher so you know the, these guys are thinking about it and and it's geared towards that it's geared towards giving the publisher the rights to be able to do something you know this does remind me though of and this was decades ago now that I, uh, as I think about it, but, um, you know, there were, there was a whole thing with uh, whether or not, um, you owned the rights to your image if you were a very public figure. So I don't know if you remember, there was like a vacuum cleaner commercial that had like Fred Astaire dancing or something, uh, with the vacuum cleaner, uh, back in the nineties, I think. Uh, and that I remember sparked a whole conversation about, you know, what happens once, once a celebrity, an actor or musician has passed, like, you know, what rights does their estate hold when it comes to their image or their voice or, or whatever. Um, so I think we're going to see a lot of that come up. I think we're going to, we're in a, mm-hmm. we're in the wild west era of this right now. And, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Personally, I, what I want, what I would like to see is I want to be able to control what happens to those rights after the fact. It to the benefit of my estate. Like if you want to continue writing Kevin Tomlinson books or use my voice for, you know, ads or whatever, uh, great. Here's the terms. And I, and this is the amount of money that's going to, or percentage or whatever is going to go to my estate. That's what I'd like to see. Yeah. I foresee, uh, additional, um, 
I don't know the right term for it, but just additional uh, verbiage in contracts between an author and the narrator, uh, because I can see a lot of I actually have been seeing a lot of narrators on things like TikTok that are concerned over this. So I can see having to sign contracts in which uh, that sort of line is added in there where it, these their voice cannot be used in AI models in which you can opt out of. So that kind of puts more effort on the author who owns the rights to the audiobook to make sure that they are doing their due diligence uh, in protecting the narrator's voice. That's actually a really valid point because the contract that I'm looking at is is mine as the the creator. It's that the narrator's got zero say in this right now. I, I can decide to keep it in there. I can take it out. The narrator doesn't get a vote, um, at least not on paper. Um, so yeah, so cr- crazy stuff. Definitely moving fast. Um, JP, what else is in the news? So we've got an update. Uh, the Author Guild wins key concessions in settlement uh, with Authors Place Press. So we had a conversation about this earlier where 10 authors had a, um, well, they ended up with a settlement uh, with Author Place Press uh, winning the concessions and uh, Author Place has agreed to reverting the rights, um, which means that they're free to public uh, to publish elsewhere. Uh, and uh, author's place needs to provide legal documentation of those rights reversions upon request, uh, provide authors with electronic and text design files of any artwork that was associated with it, and also make a token monetary payment to the lead plaintiff and author, Karen Schoenbart, who helped organize the suit. Nice. Well, good for Karen. I'm glad to see they finally got something out of this. And yeah, at least they're going to get their rights back to their books. I don't know if they're going to see anything monetary, um, you know, money wise, but it's it's good that yeah. they're getting their rights back and they can move on. Definitely. Uh, up next from Esquire, uh, there was a talk about inside book Twitter's final question mark days uh, and It was an article that was talking about Book Twitter, which is a very big community of writers, editors, agents, publishers, etc., who basically have a 24-7 virtual writing group uh, where people can ultimately interact with anyone at any scale or level, have these conversations, and it's led to tons of collaborations, tons of lower or indie authors finding ways in which they can, you know, get their books published. And there's just general concern over the fact that after Elon Musk had purchased Twitter, uh, there's a lot of questions or confusion about what is going to happen to Twitter in the following future. So I was curious what you guys' thoughts are on uh, using these kind of social medias as ways in which communities build. I think that's... Go ahead. I was just going to say, I was going to say, I think vinyl came back. So, you know... Everything uh, yeah. that is trendy and becomes untrendy and then trends again. When there first was the takeover, I saw a lot of authors losing their minds and they're going to places like Mastodon or wherever else, Hive. Um, but then they just kind of slowly trickled back and everyone is still there. Yeah. I think it's hard to shift that community um, because it's been built there and people are so comfortable there. And um I, I just don't see that going away. They built up such a big community. I think there would have to be a lot more that happens for book Twitter to go away. Right. I, I was one of those people. I mean, I, I personally didn't panic and, and run off. But what I did is I went to you know, like all the other sites that were being mentioned as possible replacements and and quickly garbled, got uh, J.D. Barker, you know, the, the moniker, yeah. I just created those accounts so that nobody else could snag them. Um, but in all honesty, like I'm, I'm personally burnt out on social media. Um, I, I don't know that I would 
go to another platform and start over essentially because that's basically what you're doing. Um, yeah, I've been off Facebook forever. I use Twitter occasionally. Um, but I just, I don't see in the end, I don't see this kind of shakeup really moving anything. I think certain people got scared. Like you said, they ran away, they came back, you know, Stephen King is still on there. He got, went out and he's, he paid for his blue check mark, you know, after complaining about it. Um, and he's not going anywhere. And, and, you know, I think a lot of authors are going to follow suit. Like the community is already built and I think we're just all burnt out to the the point where we don't want to rebuild it somewhere else. Nobody, you know, wants to burn down the house and start over if we can somehow salvage the one that we've got. Um, so I think that's Mm -hmm. where it's at. Yeah. And I, I think that social media in general has always that's one of its roles was to help people form these little pocket communities and, and communicate and i you know the changes i've seen made on twitter are the things that i've seen happening on twitter i, I really haven't seen much change honestly but the the things i i see happening I, it's all it's it's all temporary or it's hype or it's you know it's it's never anything that i think is going to have a serious negative impact on anyone so that's my take. And, but I stay away from a lot of, I, I, I kind of duck out on a lot of the more dramatic conversations on Twitter. You know, I guess what it all boils down to is Twitter is owned by somebody and that somebody may not own it for six months, six weeks, a year, two years from now. And catastrophizing about stuff that might kind of sort of will happen is it drives people crazy, you know, and that's why it becomes so mm-hmm. toxic. You know, it's like, I'm still waiting for my MySpace to come back, you know, but, you know, <laughs> that's not coming back anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And for me, it it made me think, like, having one form of contact for people that you intend to have continued conversations with is always a terrible idea, especially when that form of contact could be controlled by, you know, a social media or whatnot. So, like, figure out ways to actually get to know the people that you you want within your writer circle, get their emails, like figure out ways to meet them in person at events and at at author events and whatnot. Because I think that that's the best way to ensure that regardless of what happens externally, you still have ways to connect with the people that you want to connect with. Yeah. That's the own your platform philosophy that we, we always preach, you know, yeah, you should, you should definitely have more than one way or you should definitely try to funnel everyone into something that you've actually control rather than be completely reliant on something that is just out of the gate, completely out of your control. Well, I mean, that's why we have newsletters, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like, okay, you want to be engaged with your readers or whatever. And it's like, Hey, I'm on Facebook all the time. Oops. Facebook is gone in six months from now, or it's drastically changed. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, well now I'm kind of screwed. I didn't have a plan B. I mean, you know, Use what's there to the, you know, and milk everything that you can get out of it. And then when, you know, it's dry, you move on to something else. Exactly. And last up uh, is a column from the LA Times. Uh, It is titled Barnes and Noble Saved Itself by Putting Books First. Imagine that, Uh, which I thought was a very funny title. (laughs) But uh, ultimately, in the summer of 2019, uh, Elliott Management bought them out, bought Uh, Barnes and Noble out and hired James Daunt as CEO. This was the person who had previously turned around the British bookstore chain Waterstones. Uh, So they've started to see a profit. Those numbers are not available, but uh, they claimed that they are starting to see a profit. And most of the strategy has been around removing irrelevant products from the store and focused on books and related projects um, that ultimately 
a buyer would intuitively think should belong in a bookstore. So anything from books to writing. Uh, I found this uh, to be kind of uh, nice to see, especially since uh, Amazon is such a behemoth and we've been hearing news and news about Barnes & Noble going under for years now. Uh, so it's kind of nice to hear this positive side of things. Yeah, my old Barnes & Noble is now a, a urgent medical clinic. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, I've seen that a lot, you know. Well, I have a question about that because I get emails from my sort of local bookstore. They're they're a chain, but they're not like a Barnes and Noble. And the things they send me in the email, I'm like, why are you sending this to me? I just got the Valentine's Day email from them and it was like adult toys and like candles. And I'm like, um, yeah, like this is really odd stuff for a bookstore to send to me because that's not what I signed up for this email letter for. Yeah. So yeah, I'm glad that books are coming back. I'm honestly, one of the things that I noticed in Barnes and Noble, you know, just as an observer, when I go in there, a lot of people come in and they don't necessarily buy books. You know, they, they, they pick a book up off the shelf, then they head over to the the cafe area, get themselves a cup of coffee and a little snack. And they sit down in one of those cozy nooks and read that book. And then they put it all back on the shelf when they're, when they're done. Um, It sounds like they're moving towards changing that attitude as well. Um, and at least trying to find ways to do it without having to close down the the, the food service that they've got there. Mm-hmm. Um, our local one has gone through so many changes. I, I'm in there every time I've got a new book come out and it's like a different store every single time. And, and you know, this is only like every four or five months, but like, you know, the, the new release table is in a different spot. These shelves that were over on the right are now on the far left. Um, the last time I was in there, there's an Etsy section. There was an eBay section. Um, there's a, obviously a TikTok section at this point. Um, I've got no idea what I'm going to see when I go in there next. But it's it's good to see them making changes and at least trying these different things. And if one of them is working, that's that's fantastic. Definitely. Yeah, I would hate to see Barnes Noble go under because it is it's a destination for me. I'd also hate to see it like intrinsically change because it is my that's my third place uh, to use Starbucks language. <laughs> like that's that's where I go to write and do other things. And I buy a ton of books from from Barnes Noble, but I will be the first to admit that I don't buy books every time I go to Barnes Noble. I'd hate to see that change though. Yeah, same. (laughs) So uh, let's get on to some business before our interview. So we want to give a wonderful shout out to our sponsor, Later Press. Later Press is a platform built to help authors declare independence. It lets authors create digital books and sell them directly to readers through a branded website. Later Press is free to publish on and doesn't take any commission on direct sales. It's one of the most effective ways readers can directly support authors they love. Get started today at laterpress.com. So, J.D., who's up this week? This week, we've got Greg Hurwitz coming back. He's the New York Times bestselling author of the Orphan X series, as well as one of the co-presidents of ITW, which is International Thriller Writers. His latest novel is called The Last Orphan and releases February 14th. So here he is, Greg Hurwitz. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. No, same show, different hosts. So I'm just going to ask you all the same questions and then we'll just compare your answers to last time. Uh-oh. No, right. I'm just kidding. We'll see how I do. We'll see okay. if we can in some lies. Perfect. No, so you have a new book out, The Last Orphan, which is the eighth book in the Orphan X series. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Well, I wanted Evan's past to catch up to him in basically the most traumatizing fashion possible. So Evan has always operated on the run from the government who created him as a, you know, they pulled him out of a foster home at the age of 12 to be an assassin. He stayed off the radar. He committed lots of assassinations. You know, he doesn't just know where the bodies are buried for the 
State Department and DOD, he's the one who buried most of them. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, he went on the run and he's just too dangerous and an asset with everything he has in his head for them to allow his head to remain attached to his shoulders, basically. So they've been pursuing him. He's always avoided them um, through the course of seven books. And the eighth book, this might be the point that they catch up to him. And the manner in which they do is sort of crushingly traumatizing in a different way for him to have to take stock of where he came from and where he is. And essentially he is brought under the control of the government. You know, there's a straight line of command that goes right up to the president of the United States. And he's asked to complete one last mission uh, if he wants to live at their behest. And he swore he would only do things aligned with his own moral compass. And this is also a mission that's unlike anything in an antagonist who's unlike anybody he's ever encountered. It's a pretty wild book. It is a wild book. I really enjoyed it. And I, I have to find out now if uh, spherical ice cubes really make a difference in vodka. So that will be my big next uh, big difference. I did call the hotline, though, the, the 1-855-2-Nowhere. That was interesting. It sounded yeah. like Evan uh, had his hands full and I'm waiting to see if he's calling back or coming for me, I guess. Yeah, his encrypted phone number, one eight five five to nowhere. If you're in the U.S., you can call his line and see if he answers. It yeah. might just be the voice of Scott Brick, who's my audiobook narrator, as Evan spoke. I thought that was great. You know, it was so entertaining. How did this come about? Like, how long has this been hotline been going on? How did that um, come to fruition? You know, it's a funny story. When I wrote the manuscript, even before my editors had read it, um. I had that 1855 number and I went out and bought it. And I went over to Scott's house. Scott's a friend. Scott has been doing my book since The Crime Writer. I said, Scotty, I got a new series. I want you to be the voice of Evan Smoke. I'll explain it all later. He's an assassin, but I need you in your recording booth to just make a recording for me. Are you willing to do that? And Scott was like, Yeah, that sounds like fun. So he made this crazy recording, didn't even know what the book was about. And what's so funny now is, now coming up on eight books in Scott Brick is like is synonymous with Orphan X and Evan Smoke as an audiobook reader. Like they're as closely linked as pretty much any character an audiobook reader. I actually even put it in my contracts with audio companies that it's got to be Scott Brick who reads. And so that predated it. I mean, even before my my editors had read, I knew that was I wanted to have that number. I wanted to have it up and running. That's amazing. So that was just your own idea, not a PR thing. You just oh. were like, I got to have this number and I'm going to write some books about it. That's kind of how it went. That's right. Wow. That's really cool. Um, I think that's a great idea. Everybody should have a hotline for their book, right? <laughs> well, the best things like that always come when it's organic, you know, when it doesn't feel like, you know, if I'm thinking around with marketing and then the marketing is leading and the cards before the horse, I wrote the whole book before I thought of it. You know, he also has a, a secret email that shows up once in a blue moon that people sometimes email asking for help. Oh, wow. And do those come to you? I don't know where they go. I don't know where they go. Some of them get answered. Some of them get answered. That's awesome. Um, so you've been writing for a long time. And The Last Orphan is the eighth book in the Orphan X series. How do you keep the joy alive and keep coming up with original ideas for the next book this far into a series? It's a really good question. Um, Evan is a character who really moves forward significantly in the course of the series. This is a very different kind of book. A lot of these are very different kinds of books. They function in different ways. Um, 
you know, the first Orphan X, the first two are a little bit more like tough muscular thrillers. So they always have a lot of heart. But what the books are really about is him thawing his way into his humanity again after having been trained to largely suppress it. Um, for me, the key line in the series around which all the stories coalesce is when Jack Johns, his handler, former CIA station agent, has him when he's 12. He tells Evan, the hard part won't be making turning you into a killer. The hard part is keeping you human. And so all of the books are about that. And as he kind of moves and grows, the types of challenges, the types of trauma, the types of emotional impact, the ways that he's stretched, the things that threaten him, where his vulnerabilities are, they all shift. And what's been amazing about that for me is it's given me the opportunity to write these very, very different kinds of books. Um, and so in this one, for instance, his the antagonist he's up against, he's a brilliant power broker uh, in finance, in politics. He's got an elaborate bribery scheme. He's got a lot of people who, in his black book, Luke Devine, uh, he's a sort of a brilliant, charismatic, um, almost manic depressive, maybe, you know, hinging on bipolar genius. And his engagement with Evan is very different. It's like an intellectual or psychologically manipulative attack. And that's not really something we've seen before. And the ways that he goes and gets under Evan's skin and the way he challenges Evan and the way that he tries to toy with him and tries to play with him is very different than what we've seen before. And so that keeps it really new for me to have that kind of exchange where it's it's remarkably different. Yeah, this one was very psychological, really looking at, you know, morality and your moral compass. And, you know, where do you draw the line? Do actions of people under me make me the bad guy or... You know, so there really was that kind of exploration. And you have, uh, were at one time a psychology student, I believe. So did that play into this book at all? Or how do you use psychology in your writing? Psychology, it's funny. Psychology, so psychology was my second major. I had two majors in college. I studied English and psychology. I was fascinated by basically persuasion, manipulation, personality psychology. I focused heavily on Freud and Jung. You know, Carl Jung never wrote about anything but narrative, whether he was writing about myth or dreams or alchemy even. It was all how stories are structured. Um, but to me, psychology was always integral. You know, when I was studying as an undergrad, I started the, like a really, really shitty rough draft of my first book when I was an undergrad. Um, and the psychology was so key to it, like the way that I think through characters, the way that I see people, the engagement in the world. Um, and it's a big part of it for me. And so that the kind of psychological nuance, it's it's hard for me to remove that from my sense of characters and from my sense of why characters do what they do and what constitutes making something thrilling. Every action in a book, in a thriller, the protagonist has to or should, not has to, engage with it, engage with a conflict, engage with a verbal exchange in a way that's unique to them, right? That's the thing that differentiates James Bond from Jason Bourne, right? So it's it's constantly trying to really understand. And I feel like when I'm writing really well, all the characters, what they're saying are, are as unique to them as when you go out with a group of your friends and you know who's got what kind of humor, you know who's a pain in the ass what way, right? You know who's 
going to be tough on this topic or take a particular approach or worldview or perspective. And I think as writers, that's what we're trying to do. That's what we do when we do it the best, right? Is we've managed to pull on all these masks of different characters and really embody them and see the world through their eye holes, right? And so that's been a really fun part of it because Evan's, as Evan's journey has moved from being kind of a solo lone wolf, right? An operator who's basically a cutout man towards meeting more people and pulling them into his world, whether that's me and Peter, whether that's Joey Morales, right? Whether that's Aragon Urea, his good friend who he met last time around in Dark Horse. There's a lot more texture and edges, rough or otherwise, to, to bang in and bang up against and to create new wounds and new occasions for healing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm interested there that you were talking about putting on masks. I read on tour.com that you said that Halloween prepared you to be a writer. Can you tell us more about how you try on different characters or how that works? <laughs> that's that's so funny. I, look, I love Halloween. I mean, every year I go as the Punisher. He's my favorite comic book <laughs> character. It's, a you know, it was my one of my first jobs in comics was writing Punisher. So it goes all the way back to me in seventh grade. And it's also a great costume because you just need like black jeans and the Punisher t-shirt with a floating skull. But Halloween, you know, it's 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 great. We have a codified holiday that every year you get to role play. You get to be different characters. You get to engage in the spooky and the eerie and the supernatural and the preternaturally scary. And we dip our toe into what's terrifying. And I always loved it. I was, it's my favorite holiday. And I always loved how, you know, it's this moment for play and thrills and terror and playing around with identity. Awesome. So yeah, I'd like to hear more about uh, you writing comics and graphic novels. So most recently, you've been doing that for AWA, which is uh, founded by DC and Marvel alums. And you're on AWA's Creative Council. Do you want to talk yeah. a little bit about that? Well, we have a great creative council. Um, I came in from the beginning. I'd taken about a 10-year hiatus from comics after writing Batman for DC because I'd like written my favorite characters. And so I had this opportunity to come in and be on the creative council and get to do my own creator-owned work. Um, and what's funny is in some ways, my my focus, I've I love writing Orphan X so much. Like my focus has been so much on these books. It's far, you know, I, I it's far and away the longest series that I've written. Um and so for me to go into a different medium now, it really requires something that's very personal. And the new graphic novel that came out, my latest graphic novel is called New Think. And it's five separate stories. It's an anthology. And you can think of that a little bit like Black Mirror meets the Twilight Zone. It's ways that I show our surreal current moment of tech addiction, of polarization, right, of cultural strife. And I use frame breaking techniques, which is one of the things science fiction is really good for, to kind of crack into this current moment through a different frame that makes us see things radically different. Um, and I hope that I've done that in five different ways that will really make people rethink like why we're here and what we're doing and how much have we lost our minds by being online and how insane are we from social media and the hate industrial complex? Like I ask a lot of questions that are unsettling through the guise of five different stories in the anthology. I have fantastic artists too, like world-class artists. And so that's called New Think. And that's a very, it was cool. I mean, it was amazing to be able to write something 
and have that level of creative talent and support brought to bear around it in in the world of comics it was amazing for me. That's awesome. So you're kind of doing a sci-fi exploration about technology destroying the world and other uncomfortable questions. <laughs> It's just different frames. I mean, one stories like I have a sci-fi invasion stories. The first one, the second one's uh, kind of upside down fairy tale. The third one is a stalker horror uh, story. The fourth one's a kind of different take on a time travel narrative. And the fifth one is a children's story with somebody just very reasonably and calmly explaining to kids sort of this world and politics and how it all lines up and like through this lens that that is so hopefully um reasonable and steady and obviously moral that it really draws a very strong contrast to all the ways we've gotten off the mark with it. I love that. And I love that you can just pick projects and be selective about things that are really meaningful and important to you. And um what are you doing on the creative council? Are you like uh, helping to foster new careers or what does that, that do? Um, it certainly is that it's how we build out it's bigger picture, creative strategy. You know, I wrote another book called knighted to help build out our universe that we have there. Um, you know, being on tap to help with sort of out of the box business solutions or other things. So it's a good experience. We have a great, um, we have a great board. Um, we have, um, you know, Lita Calagridis, who's a very close friend. Um, she wrote the Avatar movies with James Cameron. She wrote Shutter Island, Alita Battle Angel. We have Ad um, Al Madrigal, uh, who's terrific. We have Reg Reggie Hudlin, who's amazing um, writer and director and creator. Um, Joseph Kaczynski, who just directed Top Gun. Um, and um, Joe Joseph Michael Kaczynski, who's like a comic great, right, who helped build some of the foundation for the world. So it's a pretty amazing crew of creators. Um, a lot of us are in sort of different arenas. Almost everybody's a multi-hyphenate. We do a lot of different things. And we're just sort of this creative brain trust um, to, to help shepherd this new studio forward. I mean, one of the things we want to be is a, is a, a, a more creator, a very creator-friendly version um, of a Marvel or a DC with that level of talent that's brought to bear because those places have incredible talent and resources and we're building out our own stories and our own narratives. So it's really fun. And, you know, having, it's fun right now because I feel like all my projects, I'm, I'm kind of building my own creative world. Like Orphan X is, it's so much more complicated and rich than I imagined it could be when I started writing him, you know, I guess it's a yeah. decade ago almost now, which just seems crazy. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's fun. There's nothing better than getting to play and think for a living and feel. Yeah, agree. As you know. I agree. And you also got to write the opening ceremony for the 2022 World Cup. Yeah. How did that come about? Tell me about that. <laughs> well, that was a job who came through the aforementioned Lita Caligridis. Okay. Um, she's, she's amazing. And so I went with her. I'm a soccer fanatic. Uh, World Cup. I have my mom's second cousin or my mom's cousin is um was a great u.s goalie called shep messing who played behind pelé on the cosmos so i was playing soccer and diapers and we also went with another colleague of mine in a lot of anti i do a lot of pro bono anti-polarization work in the culture and in politics and um one of my probably my closest colleague in that is her name is samar ali 
And she's a she was one of Desmond Tutu's proteges, and she's also an international rights lawyer. And so it was an amazing experience for the three of us to go. We wrote the opening scene with, I don't know, um, we helped sort of give input to the whole thing, but we we wrote the opening dialogue. They wanted to do a theme around unity. And we did that for Morgan Freeman. And um, he's in conversation with, with a, a young influencer named Ghanam, who is a um, disabled young man from Qatar who's amazingly inspirational. Disabled is like a weak word. He doesn't have legs, so he moves on his hands and he's so upbeat. He's like this amazing bright light for the Middle East. And what was cool is we're there with Summer too. So we had a lot of high level um, engagement with them about the stuff like workers' rights or gay and lesbian rights. You know, we so it was a very involved um, engagement where the creative came out of this seed that we were growing, but also making sure that the conditions around it were moving in the right direction and that we were having the right conversations and that they were in fact moving forward both creatively towards that, which is what they wanted to do. Um, and also they were moving fo forward in that way in terms of transparency and accountability on some of these other issues. Um, so it wound up being like a very involved engagement on a lot of different fronts. And it was amazing to write it and then to be there and have this moment in the stadium that all of a sudden the ceremony we worked on is beaming out to 3.5 billion people around the world um, and, you know, the, the Qatar creative team wanted the theme to reflect unity and wanted to be opposed to polarization and extremism. And they took some pretty strong and brave stances in doing that um, in concrete ways. So it was cool. It was amazing creative experience. I mean, I've never participated in anything like that. Yeah, what an opportunity. And, you know, is that going to spark anything new from you, new in your work or new directions? Or what do you think is going to come out of that? And that that must have been the trip of a lifetime. It was amazing. Um, and yeah, so I've been spending a lot of time in um, not a lot of time, but I've been doing I've been having a lot more overlap with Arab countries like UAE and Jordan and Qatar and learning a lot and figuring out engagement. It's a it's amazing culture. And there's a lot of flashpoints, obviously, between the West and um, Arabic culture and some of these countries. And the level of understanding here is very diminished. People tend to view Arabs or Muslims as a monolith, like every country is the same. And like Jordan is as wildly different from UAE as, you know, Texas is from New Hampshire. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just, it's so different. And so a lot of it is, you know, in the world of Orphan X, I, I write a lot about, um, former soldiers, former operators like Evan, right? And so it's been very interesting for me to have a chance to be welcomed into and hosted by these societies, including peacemakers within these societies, and to really start to differentiate and figure out all the different narratives. And that's definitely something I want to bring to bear uh, in my fiction, because, yeah. you know, the extent to which most uh Arab characters who we see are terrorists. It's like, it's just overwhelming. It's like, that's the vast majority of the depictions. Um, and there's so much more that is to it, of course, which we know, but it's not, it's not depicted in that way. There's a flatness to it. And that's also something in my earlier writing that was the case, you know? And so it's been, it's been amazing. I mean, I, I certainly grew up, I grew up a very diverse community with lots of people from different cultures, including Arabs, including Muslims. Um, but spending that amount of time in these different countries is just eye-opening the way that travel is and that cultural engagement is. Um, yeah. So 
it's a, it's just such a beautiful, powerful culture. Yeah, it's amazing that you get to have that and you get to put that into Orphan X and, and you're writing. I mean, you're kind of known for doing a tremendous amount of research. So that's a different kind of research. Yeah, well, it's um, yeah, these these some of these trips have just been amazing. Yeah. That's the benefit of travel. You know, I think we missed that a lot during COVID. Oh, absolutely. You know, it just knocks you out of yourself. It knocks you out of all the, you know, narratives and habits and neurological ruts that we're in. Um yeah. So it was pretty mind bending. Yeah. Well, that that's excellent. So I look forward to uh, seeing where you go next with that and how that shows up in your fiction. And I believe is Orphan X in development for TV right now? Is that he something was. you can Orphan talk X about? Orphan X has been in development everywhere. I have the rights back now. I adapted it initially for a feature for Bradley Cooper, uh, which was a really good process, but I lost him to A Star is Born because he wrote, directed, produced, and starred, and just the bandwidth was gone. And then I was kind of repurposing for TV, actually, um, you know, with all kinds of different iterations of actors and co-showrunners with me and everybody, but it was during a kind of tumultuous time through the pandemic. And finally, I just, I've pulled the rights back. I just want to sit on it till it's the right creative combination at this point. In the beginning, I was very involved with creating it. But now that I'm so many books in, I'm questioning, particularly if it's TV, but also if it's a feature, my ability to spin all the plates for two parallel universes, right? One that's visual and one that's written. Um, there was much more doable when I just written one book and then two and then three, and maybe there's parts from four. And now I'm so far along that I really want to just sit back and wait for like the perfect creative opportunity. But we're in conversations all the time with people. And it's just really about finding that right match because if something's adapted well, it's amazing. And I've had enough stuff made. Look, I've been, I've been fortunate to have some things made for film and for TV and I'm only interested in doing it if it really feels like it's going to be something special now. Yeah. And especially with the length of that too, that must be a consideration for, for medium. And so are you thinking like looking at long form TV or is it still kind of just wait and see? Looking at both, but yeah, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, a long form TV format makes sense. Yeah. But, you know, there's certain actors who have been kind of flirting with it who would only want to do features for their availability. And so it just it's all going to be on that combination. Um, and that's got to come up as organically as the World Cup job came up. You know, it's just got to come up in the right way. And so with your background, do you think that's something that you'd be involved in in the writing and adapting of that? Or do you think you'd take a more hands off approach? Um, I think at this point, I would take a more hands off approach. Um, I would be involved kind of like a database and to see, but somebody else, if it's going to be a TV show, I'm not going to show run that and keep writing Orphan X. So it's got to be a role. I think somewhat like what Lee Child had for Reacher, um, where to make sure that they understand the DNA of this, to understand that the person who's in charge, um, gets what the book is about. What are the essential elements of it? But then an actor or a showrunner or director's got to take it and make it their own. So I could be involved as a producer. I could be involved in some extent as a writer, but um, I can't be the one who's keeping all of the details of and placeholding for, let's say, a show that's unfolding through multiple seasons as I'm doing it with eight, nine, 10, 11 novels at right. the same time. Yeah, just time and bandwidth, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, I hope it does get made and I, I would love to see that. So 
Um, I do have one final question for you before we wrap up. If you could offer one piece of advice to new and aspiring authors, what would it be? So I used to give the answer that everyone gives because it's the most important, which is you need your ass in the chair time, period. Like you have to get the discipline for the time. But I've been thinking about this a lot more. And I think that one of the things is, is that young writers should spend a lot of focus learning the craft, learning the conventions, learning the genre. Like you can't wildly experiment with a form, I think, effectively until you've mastered it. Like people forget that Picasso drawing realism, he could paint like Rembrandt. Like he was amazing. It's just that he chose to go off and move a different form. And I think a lot of young writers out of the gates want to start off like just reinventing the entirety of a form or write. I did. I mean, I wrote that shitty aforementioned shitty rough draft. You know, I had to write 16 drafts of that book. It was called The Tower. It was my first book um, to just get it in shape to be published. Because I was like, well, it's a satire and a mystery and it's a threat. Like I was doing too many things at once. So you want to have something that 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 matches and embodies some form that's recognizable that people know what to do with. And so that's the part that I think is important, um, even while making that fresh and even while seeking to innovate. But the other thing is that the one thing that nobody can do as well as you, prospective writers, is have the the we always talk about voice, right? Like what is voice? Is voice if you're witty? Is it if you're jokey? And a lot of that is really like, what is the perspective that you as a person bring to the discipline, to your studies, to different topics? And it's this process, I think, of uncovering and clearing off the lenses of yourself to be able to convey those so that you're not writing as kind of compilations of other books you've read, other TV shows that you've seen. What's your unique thing that you bring the way that you perceive things? It's a hard thing to uncover. It's a hard thing to uncover just in one's personal life as you get older, right? To kind of try and get back to the purity of your childhood or back when we were younger and a kind of more pure iteration of ourselves. The same thing's true for writing. It's it's very important that people understand that like you don't want to go out as much as you want to write a story that people know where to put in a bookstore. They need to know who to sell it to. An editor needs to know how to buy it. But you want to have your take on that story, your perspective, your fullest self brought to it. Um, and that's an important thing to keep an eye on and not be writing, you know, your own iteration of somebody else's book. So I want to know what you would have on your character's hotline. Uh, I, I've actually been thinking a lot about what I would do Um with uh, with a hotline like that, and uh, ever since listening to this interview, and the thing that I think I'm leaning in on is I own uh, I own a domain called Historic Crimes, and uh, I think what I would do is make my hotline a you're calling into the Historic Crimes unit, uh, which is you know they're kind of a branch of law enforcement, a brand new branch of law enforcement, uh, and I tie it's the way I tie all my characters into the same universe so uh i would totally go that direction which sounds kind of like what he's doing the same sort of thing tying together he's creating as he said his own creative universe uh so i'd lean in on that (laughs) 
for my first book, I wrote um, Forsaken. I, there's an author in there, and I, I went out and created a website for that author. His name was Tad, uh, Tad McAllister. Um, so he had his own website, which had his own books on there, which had their own book descriptions and their own covers, which was a, a shit ton of work. Um, I have no idea how many fans actually stumbled into it. I think I got like two emails from the Netherlands that you know over the, like, the last <laughs> 10 years since that thing's been up there. Um, but it is fun to have those Easter eggs out there for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sons of Anarchy had one towards the end of the series, and I called it, and it was uh, Katie Seagal, also known as Peg Bundy. You know, she's like, hey, dumbass, I'm dead. Why are you calling? And that was it. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think uh, for me, the only thing I could think of uh, would be the nerd series, the National Recently Deceased Services, uh, which would be a government uh, call in line. And you'd probably tell them some wild news about a ghost and they would comedically tell you how to dispose of said ghost. (laughs) Yeah, I like that. I'd have to give out some really strange science facts or something like that. Quantum physics hotline. I don't know. But yeah, you definitely should call Greg's hotline if you haven't. It's worth it. It was a lot of fun. I did call it. Yeah, I called. I called it as soon as I. I mean, I paused the interview to call it. And uh, Scott Brick, by the way, um, what a win to get Scott Brick to actually do do that. He could have had a little more enthusiasm, but uh, <laughs> that's my only critique. <laughs> so uh, Greg also talked about um, making his characters really unique. I'm curious, what techniques do you use? Do you use people you know, or how do you get uniqueness in your characters? I, I personally cheat. I usually start off with an actor or an actress, um, mainly because it gives me a visual straight off the bat. And uh, if you go with somebody that's well known, um, you know, you've got their mannerisms, you've got their speaking patterns, you know how they walk, you, you know a lot about them because they are a real person to a certain extent. I mean, they're obviously playing different people in, in movies and stuff like that, but it, it gives you a good basis. Um, I, I, I find that a little bit easier. Um, something else I do, I think that a lot of authors don't think about is I make sure that their name is age appropriate. Um, so if I figure out my character is 38 years old and it's female, so I'll go back and look at what were the most popular baby names 38 years ago for women, um, and make sure I go with that. Um, a lot of authors just don't do that. They pick names at random or they go with something that's common today. Um, but you know, your subconscious picks up on that kind of stuff. If you hear the name Harriet, you automatically think of an older woman, you know, it's just certain names trigger that. So I try to use that. Yeah, I like that idea, uh, leaning in on kind of the stereotypes a little to um, to kind of give some dressing to the character. I, I you know, and I'll do things like that. I'll assign certain characteristics to a character, even if they don't always appear on page. So, for example, I have an FBI agent who has who suffers from uh, claustrophobia uh, because he was a special forces uh, soldier and got caught in a, uh, a cave in. And uh, it just sort of triggers whenever he's in uh, tight scenario, tight situations. Uh, I don't always talk about that. But what I'll do is throw in some little detail like, you know, he's in an elevator and he's broken out in a slight sweat or something. And I don't always explain why that's happening. But it it it's something that I think readers pick up on as an indication that, you know, well, this I know this character when he's in a tight spot, you know, he tends to sweat it out a little. You know, I think over time they get they get used to that. Yeah, I gave one of my guys fear of heights and arthritis. <laughs> I read a couple years ago the book 45 Master Characters by Victoria Lynn Schmidt. And that whole concept kind of stuck in my head because uh, she uses the um, classic mythology or like Greek gods to define these archetypes for characters. 
And it made a really quick shorthand for me to conceptualize what characters are like on the page and sort of like how they interact as well. Um, so that's kind of like the the baseline that I use. Um, so I highly recommend that book. It's a really good way to kind of get those ideas characterized. What was that title again? 45 Master Characters. Okay. Something you have to be very careful of, and I see this in a lot of uh, first-time authors, is they tend to assign characteristics to every character in their book. Um, they give they have to come up with something unique for every single character, so, you know, yeah. a unique speech yeah. pattern, a u- unique, tw- you know, yeah, whatever they're this Everybody one's an alcoholic this one's got a, yeah, or, yeah yeah there's there's always <laughs> something and like if you go overboard with that stuff it, it jumps out at you too so you have to be really careful i mean it really kind of stick to your main characters uh, one of the things i advise people to do i, I create something i call the, the hierarchy of characters so anytime i write a book i make a list of every character that's in that book and then i rank them on that sheet of paper based on you know their, their importance basically the amount of screen time that they've got so you know whoever's got the most dialogue is number one whoever's got the second most is number two um, and that allows me to basically create a focus list of how, you know which character should be the most interesting, which one should stand out. Um, it also helps with point of view. If, if you've got two characters that are in the same room together and they're talking, the point of view should go to whoever is highest on that list. Um, there's nothing more frustrating to me than reading a book where you've got multiple points of view throughout the, the novel um, and you're, you know, your main character basically takes a back seat so you can hang out in the head of a secondary character for this one chapter. Um, yeah. It just it, it takes the reader completely out of it and they're just they're not going to relate to the character. So it's, it's useful for that sort of thing. How, how do you decide when it's time to switch POV? How do you decide? Uh, when I can't think of anything else for the, the one particular character. Okay. <laughs> now it's, um, I, I really try to keep it as minimal as possible. Um, and you know, it's, I think any good book, I think it needs to be at least 50 to 70%, at least in one character's head or more, um, in order for the reader to really relate to that character. If you've got a book where, you know, you've got 10 different characters and you're all just rolling through those 10 over and over and over again, the reader never re- really relates to any particular one. Um, unless you go to like 2000 pages, you know, like Stephen King did with the stand, it just, it takes that kind of, you know, that, that kind of text. Um, so yeah, I, I try to just keep the focus and I only use the second point of view if it's absolutely necessary to tell the story. I have a question what you think about um, like whose conflict it is because I know when I've done some editing work uh, with clients I'm like explain to me what's going on in this scene and they'll be like well this character is watching this other character I'm like let's stop let's stop at this character is watching so if they're watching the scene and not actively participating in it should it be from their point of view? So that's something that I, I think about. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I think there's actually occasionally valid reasons why you would tell that scene from that character's point of view, especially if you're trying to amp up the like the predatory vibe. You know, um, we're we we get the heebie-jeebies when we know we're being watched, and so you could probably aim to convey that feeling in that scene. Now, if you're if you're telling a, a you know if you're writing a romance, that's a bad thing. Um, I would avoid you know, stalker vibes, uh, unless that's the story you're trying to tell. I mean, everybody's got their thing, but yeah, I, I think there's valid reasons for when you would do that, but I would use that in a very limited way. Well, and it, it would need to be consistent through the story. You can't, um, just do it like a, as a one-off a one-time thing for one scene, just because that's the only way you can think of to tell the scene. You'd have to do seed that type of, you know, that, that format throughout the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like how, um, 
kind of like punching up a scene or, or driving anxiety. So like a character that can't do anything. And so you're from that perspective, like a husband having to watch uh, their spouse go through something traumatic that kind of amps up that tension or that feeling. But I would say definitely you have to have a reason behind why you're doing this. And it almost always is amping up some type of tension or, or sense, whether it's a stalker or this feeling of helplessness. Awesome. So Greg also called himself a multi-hyphenate, which I thought was interesting, meaning that he does a lot more things than just writing fiction. So he writes comics, he writes speeches. What multi-hyphenate things would you like to do? Oh, geez, I'm kind of already doing them. Um, I, I've actually tried to branch out. I, I've had a, a company reached out to me and they, they were working on a, a graphic novel for a fourth monkey and they created one for forsaken. Um, so I was part of that process. Um, I've written a screenplay before I wrote the, a screenplay for callers game, um, for, I can't say the production company, but, um, you know, it was a good exercise, but honestly, like the only thing I actually enjoy out of all this is sitting down and just writing the, the books. So I wanted to try all these different things because I wanted to get a better handle on what it takes to do them, but I don't see myself going out there and doing them again. Um, I, I know Greg well enough where I know he's got hands in every single pot. You know, he, he loves comics. I, I know he's written screenplays. He, he likes doing all those different things. Um, I, I just don't. I, I prefer to just keep my head down and just write the next book. I think I, my career could be very well described as multi-hyphenate um, with all the different things I've, I've been into. And uh, I've, I've enjoyed all of it. Writing has always been the through line for my career. But, you know, I've done different types of writing, of course. But, you know, I, I, I've actually, and we talked about this a bit. I mean, I, I would love to write comics. I've, I've, uh, always had a love for comics and, and particular characters, you know, uh, very difficult industry to crack. I end up, I have befriended a lot of comic book writers and all of them tell me that, you know, it's, it's basically, it, it's, it's, it's a slog to get into that career. Now there was a time where you could write like a spec script and maybe get like a holiday issue or something. And you could be, uh, you know, you'd have a career in comics. Uh, I think that time has been gone for a couple of decades now at, at a minimum. Uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd love to be into that. And I've written films and I've written, you know, there's all kinds of th other things I've written. Um, so I've enjoyed a nice career, a nice multi-hyphenate career. Cool. So, um, yeah. So was there anything else that struck you about, uh, what Greg had to say? I'll say that, um, he mentioned adaptations and I, one of the things I was wanting to open up to us was, have you ever, uh, have you gotten anything ad ad adapted to a different medium or, or do, is that something you want or, uh, what are some hangups you've, you've bumped into in trying to get there? I mean, I've got a ton of experience in this. Anybody else? No. A little bit. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> not, not tons. I don't have tons. <laughs> I, I've got seven, seven of my books right now in various stages, what I call Hollywood hell. Um, and so I, and, and it's funny because depending on, you know, like the, the projects, like there, I see a lot of the same things happening. Um, I just got a, uh, it was an email from the production company that's working on the 4MK series. And it was basically changes that they wanted to make to the storyline in order to stream it for, for television, uh, to streamline it a little bit. Um, I can't go into what those details were. Like some of them made sense. You know, I was like, oh yeah, that, that I could see that working. I'd want to watch that. And other ones were like so far out of left field. I was like, that's, you know, I've, I've seen that in other television shows. It's got nothing to 
to do with this one. And, and the problem with it is, you know, my brain starts looking at everything else that it undoes. So if you introduce this particular item, this widget into the storyline, how does that impact the rest of the storyline? Does it unravel it or does it help tie it up? Um, and that can get really frustrating. So again, I, I just rather keep my head down and just write the next book because otherwise I'll spend a week going, well, why is my lead character from this TV show that hasn't been finished yet, you know, now have this instead of that. And it's, it, it can get frustrating. You have to effectively just give up control of, of that property uh, when you hand it over to, it's a completely different thing than your book and you can't be precious with it. Um, and I, like I said, I've had very little, I, I've only had a small bit of experience with this, but you know, I've had several, um, you know, several groups come around and like try to option something or, or discuss with me what they wanted to do with it. Uh, I think it's really important that you have conversations with these folks and decide in advance what you're willing to hand over control wise. Uh, and if you really desperately want to see that character on screen, uh, in some way you, you should be prepared to release the reins because <laughs> they're going to, they got, they, they've got different, um, motivation and, you know, different things that they're trying to accomplish than you are. And, uh, you, you know, that's not your character at that point, not the one on screen. Well, one of the writers in my Facebook group, he's very prolific. He's an indie author and he was approached by one of the major streaming services to pick up, you know, they wanted to option one of his books. He's like, okay, sounds great. So they're like, okay, 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, we're going to do a zoom. All right. 10 o'clock the next morning, nothing. He calls and it's like, oh yeah, totally. We got swamped, you know, tomorrow at noon. And he's like, all right, now this guy is like in his seventies. You know, he's, he's growing very impatient and it's like, okay, yeah, you know what? We don't have time now today. So this cycle like kept going for four or five days. And finally he's like, okay, how much are you going to pay me? And it was like a hundred grand. And he says, he says, I can make a lot more than that. Instead of Jicky jacking around with you guys, he says, you know, he's, he can pump out books like there's no tomorrow. He says, I'd rather go fishing with my grandkids. He says, I'm done. Bye. He says, at first it sounded cool, but then he's like, not worth it. Well, honestly, I mean, that's the way I, I kind of view screenwriting, at least for me at this point, because like I, I know I can write the next book. I know I will make money from that next book. And if I take three or four months out to write a screenplay, I have no idea where that's going to go or what's going to happen. Um, in, in general, like Hollywood stuff, it, to me, is very much a roller coaster. Um, you know, like you'll, I'll get a phone call from my agent and this insanely incredible thing just happened. And then two days later, I'll get another phone call from my agent and this incredibly terrible thing just happened. Um, and. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like, I, I'll give you an example without putting the names out there with, with one of my, my screenplays. It's with a production company, with a, uh, a studio, um, a very large actress basically read it and want, decided that she was going to become part of this, this project. Um, so within a week, because this actress had what they call a first look deal with Netflix, meaning that she basically takes all her products to Netflix first, um, Netflix signed on and was on board and greenlit a, a hundred million dollar budget for this, this project. Uh, within another week, there was a scheduling conflict for this particular actress she's no longer able to be on the project so she was out <laughs> netflix was out budget was out um you know so you just you go through these types of insane things um and you know meanwhile nothing is really happening you know this is just phone calls yeah. and zoom calls just like you had mentioned um so again i just keep my head down just write <laughs> write the next book yeah like with most things it's not real until it's real like it, yeah. until yes, that 100%. Netflix show has has started streaming or that movie has <laughs> has uh, hit the theater, it doesn't exist. 
because it can yep. go away like instantly <laughs> right up into, I mean, everything could seem like it's going great. Everything could seem like there's, it's a done deal and it could be, I mean, look at what happened over the past uh, couple of years. There were, there were series, TV series and, and films and things that just, uh, the one that popped in my head just now was the, uh, the, the, the Batgirl, uh, film. Uh, mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. various reasons, that thing made it all the way through post-production and, and won't be released. Um, so, you know, until it's real, it's not real. Patterson had that book that he did with Bill Clinton called The President is Missing. Um, Showtime optioned that right away. Um, they actually had four episodes in the can, like done, filmed and finished um, when COVID started and Showtime pulled the plug on the entire project. So like even with four episodes on something that big of a budget, um, it, it can happen. So yeah, until you're, you're sitting in your chair and watching the finished product, you just never know. Well, it's interesting to me, you know, I, I interviewed um, Jack Carr and so did you, Kevin, on your show. Yeah. And mm -hmm. he's like, well, I'm going to write Terminal List. Anton Fuqua is going to be the director. Chris Pratt is going to be the main character. You know, and this is before any of it came to fruition, and it all did. I was just like, holy cow, how, how the heck do you do that? But he did. I guess. That guy's laser focused, though. He said, when he was a little kid, I'm going to be a writer, and I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And both of those things are very difficult to do, but he did them. True. All right, excellent. Uh, so, J.D., who's up next week? Next week, we've got James Rollins coming back. He's the number one New York Times bestseller of, of many novels. His latest is called The Cradle of Ice, and it just released. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.